welcome to the latest issue of Talking About Methods. I'm really pleased to be joined by Insa Kosh today. She's going to talk to us about researching and working with communities over time. Insa is currently the Chair of British Cultures at the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland. Previously, she was a tenured Associate Professor in Law and Director of the Anthropology and Law Programme at the LSE. She has trained both as a lawyer and an anthropologist at the LSE and the University of Oxford. Insa is an interdisciplinary scholar who works ethnographically and collaboratively on questions of intersecting inequalities, political economy and the state. So thank you so much for joining us today, Insa. It's a real delight to be able to talk to you about ethnographies. I wondered if you could just start by telling us a little bit more about the sorts of research that you do. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Linda, for inviting me to join the podcast today. As you've said, I'm an anthropologist and a lawyer by training, and I use ethnographic methods. So my research has been based on long-term fieldwork that I do in one particular community in particular, but I've branched out since then. My research started back in 2008, so I guess about 15 years ago, when I first went to an estate, a council estate, in the southeast of England to understand how the people who live in that community citizens, how they relate to the state and how they understand their relationship to the government in a context where relationships with government officials and the authorities are often very hostile and antagonistic for different reasons. I spend years living and working in the community. I've been going back ever since, whenever I can, both just to see people, to see my old friends. Many of them have become good friends of mine, but also for follow-up and new research projects. And it's through that long-term relationship I've been able to build with people in the community that I have worked on a number of different research projects, some of which are more legal, others, I guess, would be more political or sort of classical anthropological research topics. That's great. Thanks so much. So could you tell us for the sort of first phase of the ethnographic research when you were based in Southeast England, how long did you spend doing that initial ethnography? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my first trip, as it were, to the estate um, happened as part of my PhD, my doctorate. I was given by the university about 15, 16 months to do that research. But what I ended up doing, because I couldn't face any other (laughs) scenario is I ended up staying in the community after I had officially finished the period of fieldwork. Because as I'm sure many listeners and you know you yourself know, there's no such thing as a natural starting point and an end date to fieldwork. And to me, it felt very artificial to, to move away from the community once I had officially finished the fieldwork. So I ended up living in the community for a number of years. I then, once I'd finished the doctorate, had uh, took on a job in a different city in London, and that's when I left the community for a number of years. Great. And could you tell us a little bit more about some of the key themes that emerged from that work? Because you obviously produced a book of that initial project, which I I would recommend everybody reads. It's a really wonderful book. Yeah, so what I was trying to do in the book called Personalising the State was to try and understand how some of the people in the community um, relate to the state and how they make sense of government in their day-to-day lives. And the original inspiration for the project was to do with me trying to understand how people made sense of and experienced what at the time were still the new Labour government's law and order policies. So this, as I said, was 
back in 2008. At the time, there was a lot of discussions in the academy and beyond about the sort of punitive rhetoric and logic that criminal justice policies were taking in the UK under the new Labour government's direction. And this was evidenced through things such as ASPOs. I mean, they've now been superseded. But at the time, there's a lot of concerns around things like antisocial behaviour orders with a lot of critical scholars being concerned about the impact of these civil criminal hybrids on human rights and civil liberties. There was also awareness at the time about the ways in which these orders and other policing tools were used in particular in relation to marginalized communities and their potentially disproportionate impact on minoritized and otherwise marginalized individuals. But there wasn't much by way of empirical research and what definitely wasn't around in terms of data was any awareness of how people who were the receiving end of these policies actually experienced them and thought about them. It was simply assumed that there was widespread support for these policies, that everyone had turned punitive and populist. And that was really what I was trying to initially investigate through my research. Was that true? Did that assumption hold up in people's day-to-day lives? How did they experience not just particular orders of policing strategies, but the state and the government more broadly? And what could we learn about democracy from people's own views and experiences of their day-to-day engagements with the state? So those were the kinds of questions I was wondering about when I arrived in the community. And of course, this is how it always goes with ethnographic fieldwork. You arrive and you realize, oh, you know, these questions really don't matter to people or the way they matter to people are completely different from what you originally thought of. And so the book ended up not being about ASBOs or policing as such. I've got a chapter on that, but it's only one of, I think, six or seven chapters. It's a much broader ethnography of what people themselves would describe as the political or the government in their day-to-day lives, really trying to understand from the bottom up how and what government and democracy and citizenship means to people in their day-to-day lives and on their own terms. That's great. That's so interesting. And I mean, one of the things I wanted particularly to explore with you is this idea then of having a long term relationship with the communities that you work in, which I think is fascinating. So, I mean, there's a danger, isn't there, that methods, books, etc., encourage people to think that they're going to go in and do their data collection and then they're going to come out of the field and they write it up and they get the book and that that's it. And I think, as you've already alluded to, that isn't really a terribly realistic description of what we do as qualitative researchers, because in many ways, the work that I've done on medical negligence victims, who I spent hours and hours talking to, I just felt a connection with them. They had told me so much about very intimate details of their life. And you have, a, it seems, an ongoing obligation to them. You've mentioned that you go back to the community because you've developed friendships. But I wondered if you could talk more about perhaps those other ongoing links to the community, what motivates you wanting to go back? Are there things that you're still learning in Mm -hmm. going back to that community from an intellectual perspective? You know, I imagine there are lots of different motivations Mm. for keeping the links. And I wonder if you could just talk us through those. Yeah, there are many different reasons for why I keep going back to the community. One is what you just mentioned, the sense of obligation, the fact that, you know, they're not just random people who participate in your research study. They become your close friends and interlocutors whose views and opinions I really value and from whom I continue to learn. Some of my friends from the estate, I call them up for advice or, you know, whenever there's something happening in the news or in politics or in government that I'm trying to understand and grapple with, I might give them a call 
or reach out to them and see how they make sense of it, how it's impacting their community. And often it's through these conversations and chats that are often very informal that new questions then emerge for me that, you know, I'm, I start thinking about themes that hadn't even occurred to me or, you know, ideas for follow-up projects emerge. And I think some of my best research projects that I've done since writing that book have come out of these sort of impromptu conversations and chats I've had with people. And I guess one of the things that always guides me or leads me in, in my own research is that I try and take seriously and value whatever's important to people themselves. You know, they're the best at knowing what matters and what we should be looking at. And it's through their guidance that I've been able to, yeah, crystallize questions for research and to apply for funding on the back of it and to bring teams of researchers together who've looked at particular issues. That's so interesting because obviously that's very much the opposite of certain approaches mm -hmm. to data collection as sort of a scientific enterprise in which there's a distinction, clear distinction between researcher and research. So you're really talking there about issues of co-construction mm -hmm. of issues and co-interpretation of yeah. phenomena. And can I ask you what sort of, you've partially answered this already, but what sort of data you think is produced using that method that wouldn't otherwise be possible? I suppose both in terms of ethnography itself and then the sort of ongoing ethnographies that you're involved with. Yeah, I think one of the obvious benefits of ethnography is that it can render visible or legible what is often silenced or misunderstood or judged from the outside. I mean, I can think of so many examples from my research where I've tried to make an intervention based on the ethnographic insights I've had that really try and challenge public perceptions or portrayals or dominant narratives that have often remained unquestioned. Yeah, if I can give you some examples, questions about why it is that people might vote in favor of leave in the Brexit referendum, in the referendum on leaving the EU, to how and why it is that people might support seemingly illiberal or punitive policies to the question of how people make sense of government and what they expect from their elected representatives beyond the kind of dominant narratives that are kicking around. So I think one of the biggest benefits of ethnography is that it renders visible and legible that which is often misunderstood or silenced or only partially revealed. I also think the data that you produce through ethnographic research is helpful or unique in that it often raises further questions. So rather than giving you definite answers, It, it provides with inquiries for more research that open the debate, you know, that sort of create a space where questions, new kinds of questions can be asked. I think that's the reason why I continue doing ethnography. Not so much because I'm looking for definite answers or because I know that I want to prioritize different forms of knowledge to the ones that have been kicking around, although that is the primary goal as well. But because I'm always looking for ways in which we can raise new questions and, and understand issues from a perspective that hasn't perhaps featured in, in the kind of dominant debate. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you sustain relationships over time with the communities you work with? Because it's quite something, isn't it, to mm. get acceptance mm. within a community, especially mm. as academics, we lead a very different sort of life from the people that would have been on the social housing estate you worked on and lived on for so long. I suppose I'm really asking you about how do you establish trust in the first place? What would your advice be to early career academics who are embarking on their first ethnography in in thinking about the sorts of behaviours that do engender trust? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I guess um, the first thing I would say would be to not be afraid to fail. I mean, I've had so many failures in my research where I tried to to gain access, where I tried to establish trust, where I was probably expecting too much and I just failed, you know, and I had to give up or think of new ways of making connections and of being able to do the research I wanted to do. So yeah, the first thing is just to expect the unexpected and to not be afraid to fail. And I guess the second thing for me that's always important is that ethnography is about building relationships isn't it if we want to think of it as a craft then it's the craft of being able to build relations and rapport in a way that that implicates you in very intimate ways as a person too you know it's not just about the so-called other it's about you as much as it is about the person or the people you're working with and there for me the, the most crucial thing is that what I would tell any kind of young researcher who might be interested in doing ethnography is to really think through how they can build a relationship that isn't just premised on extraction it's so easy to think that what you need is data and knowledge and that you're going to leave that community and you're going to write your PhD or your publications and make a career out of it and to forget that what you're dealing with are real people and real lives and real difficulties and real issues and of course promoting knowledge about a community can itself be a way of giving something back But it can also not be, or it can also not be enough, you know. And I found that in the relationships I have with people, uh, making sure that you're not extractive has meant so much more than just promoting knowledge about, say, the kinds of issues or problems or difficulties that they're experiencing. I was given very good advice when I started empirical work by Hazel Genn. She probably doesn't remember telling me this, but she said the first thing you need to remember about being a social scientist is that you are a parasite that you will build your CV and publications on the back of data that you do extract from other people. Of course, she was being dramatic to make a point, but it stayed with me because I think it's really good to keep on reminding yourself of that the whole time. And it's about the ethics of your everyday practice, really, isn't it? And I thought what you were saying about don't assume that people are going to be interested in the same issues as you is really important because Mm -hmm. part of the skill I I suppose we try to develop is to really understand Mm -hmm. the way that other people see the world, not take for granted that there are sort of shared beliefs or understandings, really. Mm -hmm. And could you tell us a little bit about the sorts of skills that you need to develop? Because it always seems to me that ethnography can be really so intensive. I mean, you were living on this estate. If I remember rightly from earlier conversations that we've had, you were also helping out in one of the sort of advice or drop-in centres. Mm. You really were sort of surrounded by a very different life world. I mean, what sort of skills do you need to develop? I'm thinking about how you build resilience, perhaps, in those situations. That's a good question. <laughs> what advice would I give in terms of building resilience? Again, I think it's easier said than done, but I think one of the key things that I wish someone had told me when I'd started being a young ethnographer not knowing anything about what it actually means is to just not put yourself under too much pressure because just being what's typically an environment that you're not familiar with, getting to know new people, dealing with institutions, having people think that you're a spy or an undercover police officer or whatever it is that they might be thinking of you and your presence and it doesn't matter how many times you tell them who you are or what you want to do. People may make up their own mind about what they think you're doing and who you are. Just dealing with all of these things is extremely emotionally and also sometimes physically draining. And I just remember the first few months of me doing ethnography as a a PhD student 
just feeling so overwhelmed and tired a lot of the times and just thinking, am I even, am I producing so-called data here? What is it that I'm doing? You know, I'm just trying so hard to get to know people and to like give myself the kind of credibility that I think I need to be able to stay and, and to do this work. But am I doing it right? And just the kind of doubts that I had and the anxiety I was feeling, the boredom that I was faced with as well when nothing was happening and nobody wanted to speak to me. All of these things are just extremely difficult to deal with. So I think in a way, the kind of intellectual task of writing the PhD is what, you know, what we focus on so much. But if you're doing fieldwork as an anthropologist, I think typically it's not the intellectual side of things you're mm -hmm. concerned with when you're doing fieldwork. It's everything else but that because you're putting yourself out there as a human being. Can I ask you about how often you left the field? Because obviously you were living in the UK and your field work was in the southeast of England. And I suppose a lot of traditional ethnographies, the early ethnographies would have been people going to somewhere very different, to a different continent, a different country. And so it was natural for them to sort of stay there. But you had the opportunity to sort of leave the field work site. I wonder what your practice is. It's hard to say because for me, so much about being an anthropologist and doing ethnography in a way that is ethically feels okay with me, because I do think it's a deeply uncomfortable method in many ways, is to try and move away from this idea that there is even such a thing as a field site or field work. You know, it's got these really uncomfortable colonial connotations for me of where you go and you're a privileged outsider who studies some so called exotic community. And of course, that's not what we're teaching our students or what we ourselves you know would ever subscribe to but there is still so much of that baggage that I think comes with the way we conceptualize the research and so when you ask me you know when did I did I ever leave the field I think that's not how I tend to think about it because for me the field work I've done that's that's also my life you know it's part of my life of course I would when I was doing the so-called field work go and visit I don't know my family from time to time or travel to other places but it wasn't this idea of you switching in and out of field work mode you know I was just moving between spaces and between relations and in the way that you would do even if you weren't actively doing ethnography and over the years that kind of sense that ethnography cannot be confined to some kind of weird idea of doing field work has become stronger and stronger for me and I think that has also happened partly because of corona when we couldn't actually physically go and visit and you had to think creatively about how to stay in touch with people you know so the idea that there is even such a thing as a physical field site completely went out of the window when you couldn't move but partly also because I myself have started doing much more activism and advocacy driven work in the communities that I work with and that just means being available 24-7 you know taking whatsapp phone calls writing letters advocating on people's behalfs connecting people to each other and all of that kind of work cannot really for me be yeah it just doesn't seem right to frame that in terms of field work and field site I think those insights are going to be really useful to a lot of our listeners. So thank you so much for that. It's a sort of getting away from this perfectibility, unrealistic perfectibility model that somehow sometimes is, is sort of promoted about the notion of fieldwork and ethnography. So I'm going off script here, but I know you're really good at, at riffing. I think something that troubles the early career academics that I work with is coming back from the field and the field and having conducted lots of interviews having masses of field work 
notes. I mean, how do you deal with all that data? It's the thing that terrifies me about ethnography. I think it's a really exacting methodology because, as you say in the beginning, you're not even sure what you're collecting. And I think, was it, I can't remember, we used to co-teach in we said, I think it was Howie Becker, when his students asked him what they should be taking notes on, he said everything because you don't know what you're looking for yet which in itself is just a terrifying notion. How do you actually go about analysing data or undertaking some sort of thematic analysis when you're sitting at your desk trying to make sense of all this stuff that you have collected? That's a really good question. I'm afraid I don't know if I've got a blueprint answer to that because it's something that I struggle with on a a daily basis, as I suspect many anthropologists or ethnographers do. In very pragmatic terms, perhaps, that's an easier way of answering it. What I did when I came back, came back from the field, see now I'm using that language too, when my supervisors requested my presence at the university and said, look, you need to write that dissertation. What I did was I went back to all of my notes, which at that point I typed up. I took a lot of handwritten notes during my time in the community, but I typed it all up. And what I did was I printed all my notes and I got the notes bound in different books, like booklets, sort of. Yeah, I guess the audience can't see it, but sort of A4 kind of books, which were loosely organized around themes. So it could be something like politics, the law, policing, the mothers. You know, I spent a lot of time with the mothers of the estate. And so I had maybe 20 or so of these books each of which was anything between maybe 100 to three, 400 pages long. And one of the things I did before I even started writing was to read through it, to, to read through all of the books. But because I'd already done that prior selection of organizing some of the stories in, in these books, it wasn't too daunting. That was the first step I did. And then in the second step, I just started writing stories. Stories that, for whatever reason, had stuck with me. Often I would write those from memory um, in order to allow me to just focus on things that intuitively had been important to me. And then I would go back to the books and double check the data. What did people actually say? Can I insert some quotes here? What do I need to take out? And once I'd written the stories, I started thinking about the stories in terms of potential chapters. I went back to some of the literature I'd read, or I would go and read new literature, depending depending on what themes would come up. And it really was through that gradual process of reading and rereading your own notes, trying to craft some stories, and then trying to link it to some of the debates or political issues that I was interested in, that, you know, that gradually a piece of work emerged. And I think we, we also just have to be kind to ourselves. And I know it's easier said than done in a situation where young academics, PhDs, who, students who want to stay in academia have so much pressure to publish and get a job but as a matter of fact writing good ethnography takes a long time and I'm very grateful that I had the space to actually you know after my PhD do a couple of years of teaching and other stuff before I even went back to the ethnography and started thinking about it as a book but it took me a good few years to publish my first book. That's really valuable. Thank you so much. And finally, I just wanted to ask you about the pieces that you have recommended that other people read that have had an influence on you and that you found valuable. Would you mind taking us through? 
Sure, of course. I should maybe preface it by saying that <laughs> I sent you about three emails changing the names and the people I'd recommended. And that in itself, I think, is quite telling because it just shows that it's so hard, isn't it, to kind of trace out a linear story of your own journey into a discipline of becoming an academic and trying to find like two or three iconic texts. You know, I can think of so many texts that have influenced me in different ways. So I have to confess, I can't even remember which <laughs> ones the three texts were that I settled on but if you ask me now who was important to you or who formed your thinking I think the person I would have to start with um, would be Simon Roberts simply because he was my teacher when I studied law and anthropology he was the first person who made me think about the connections between anthropology and law and also thinking about ethnography as a method that you can use in analyzing the law and he was someone and we've spoken about this Linda I think he was someone who took the law as a state institution very seriously and he was frustrated, I think, with the tendency he could sometimes see amongst anthropologists to label anything and everything law, you know. And I really appreciated that. And it, it comes through in his writings very much, this idea that there is something unique and distinct about the state as an institution and the violence that it's capable of committing that we as ethnographers ought to take seriously if we want to study the law. And so that really was what I took from Simon Roberts, who yeah, was my first teacher and tutor and someone I shared my ideas with. Moving on from him, when I sort of started doing my own research, I, I had a period for a few years where I moved more closely into anthropology, which perhaps is ironic, given that I just said I want to take, I always want to take the state seriously. But there was a lot of writing, especially in political anthropology, that was produced by anthropologists who consider their craft to also be a work of activism. I'm thinking of people like David Graeber, but also much less known people whose work I found inspiring because what their work allowed me to do was to really focus on the political and the law, to understand that the law as a political institution and not just as a sort of rule-bound mechanism. And so I had this sort of, I guess, flirtation with political anthropology that I still have, you know, I, there's still a lot of work, I think, that, that is very valuable. And then most recently, partly inspired by my new research project I've been doing, which looks at the government's discovery of slavery as a contemporary phenomenon against the state's own failures to address legacies of empire and transatlantic slavery. So this is my new research project. And partly inspired through that, I've recently gone back to cultural theorists and, and criminologists who, who have a strong interest in the law. I'm thinking of people like classics like Stuart Hall and people who've written in his tradition, the ways in which they enable me to think about the law as a sort of ideological mechanism for reproducing certain kinds of political and moral relations and a kind of dominant moral order in society. And I find that very instructive and helpful in thinking through what's happening in Britain today and how certain moral and political projects that are being put forward can be rethought of or, or can be framed as particular kinds of ideological projects. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Insa, for your time. I think there are so many insights there about sure. the day-to-day -day experience of field work and building communities. It's going to be really useful to the people that listen to the podcast. So thank you. No, thank you. 
Thanks so much for listening to this Talking About Methods session. If you'd like to see the list of publications that we referred to in the podcast, please go to frontiers.csls.ox.ac.uk. If you have any ideas for a blog or a podcast, please do get in touch with Linda Mulcahy at the Centre for Socio-Legal Studies. Thanks again. Bye.